Father, thank you for really the beauty of snow and ice and sunlight and frozen water. Something so pure and radiant. Pray, Lord, that you would shine that light into our souls through the preaching of your word, through this entire service. God, there's a word that we each need to hear daily and receive from you, and I pray that you would help us to hear it and receive it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the magic word? Do you know it? Have you heard it recently? It depends on context, right? If we're talking about magic, magician performing tricks, the magic word is abracadabra or hocus pocus, both of which actually have an interesting history. I won't bore you for too long, but abracadabra goes back to the third century. Some think it's based on an Aramaic phrase, meaning I create as I speak. Hocus pocus, coming from a priest, I find even more interesting. Uh, Some believe that it was jugglers who were making fun of the Catholic Church, and those words that they say, that magic moment in the Eucharist service where they say, hoc es corpus, this is my body, hocus pocus. So that's magic, but somebody said it earlier, If we're talking about manners, then the magic word is please. But there's another magic word. I want to talk about it today. It's a lot older than these. It's an ancient word written into the fabric of the universe. Really, it explains much of why and how the universe came to be in the first place. And it's an especially important word for human beings. It's critical that every person hear and receive this word. Because with it, we will come alive. We will flourish. We will be all that we were meant to be. But without this word, we will shrivel up like a plant that does not have water or light. Until we believe and receive this word, we will spend our whole lives looking and longing for the reality to which it speaks. And sadly, for many, the search will be in vain because they're going to go looking for it in all the wrong places. There is only one person who speaks this word and only one person through whom it may be received. Yes, many people can say the word, but there's only one person who says it, who speaks it, who brings the magic out of it. And so let me say again, there's only one person who speaks this word and only one person through whom it may be received. Turns out this magic word also has a beautiful and fascinating history. It was spoken by a father over his son on a very special occasion. And so if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, we'll consider the history of this word and how it comes us. Verse 13, Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Do you remember John? John the Baptist. Jesus' relative. He's got funny dress and funny diet. Camel's hair he wears. Locust and wild honey he eats. But he's incredibly important. I think a lot of time in our preaching and teaching we skip over him, but All four gospel writers spend a lot of time immersing us in John the Baptist. 
Some scholars have described him as uh, an Old Testament prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, but he actually shows up in the New Testament, and the reason why is because he's the bridge. He's the link between the two Testaments. And he's showing us that Jesus is not just coming out of nowhere, poof, he's actually fulfilling and living out of Israel's story. And especially for us Gentiles, we need to remember and learn and immerse ourselves in Israel's story that we might see Jesus and who he is in much clearer light. And so John the Baptist helps us to do that. He's also preparing God's people for this big moment of Jesus coming, the Messiah coming. If you'd like a longer exposition of John the Baptist, I refer you to Eric's very helpful sermon from December 4th, where he talks about this central figure. Well, part of John's preparation was baptism. Ritual washing was very common in the Jewish religion, wasn't something unfamiliar to them. But John's baptism has a particular purpose. He is offering people a washing of repentance from sin that they might get clean, that they might be ready before the Messiah shows up. And apparently he hit a nerve because many, many people, were told, were going out to the desert to receive this baptism. And as that was happening, he was teaching as well, and he was particularly teaching about Messiah. He was saying, when Messiah comes, he's going to come with a baptism too, but it's going to be a lot greater than my baptism. He's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. So it's a bit strange for John when the Messiah, Jesus, does show up. He comes out to John in the desert, and he wants to be baptized by John. And we hear John's response in verse 14, Matthew 3. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Didn't make sense to John for Jesus to undergo his baptism because his baptism was a repentance for sin and Jesus didn't have any sin, didn't have anything he needed to get uh, rid of in his life. He didn't need to get ready for himself. He was the Messiah. It felt all backwards to John. But in verse 15, Jesus insists, saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus sees the big picture. And he knows that it is right that he be baptized. In his words, it fulfills all righteousness. Well, in what way? This has puzzled scholars somewhat. But let me offer three ways I think Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness. They each start with the letter I. First, identification with needy sinners. Identification with needy sinners. No, Jesus was not a sinner, but his ministry was about saving sinners. And the way he was going to accomplish that was by taking on their sin, bearing the consequence of their deserved death, that they might be cleansed and forgiven. And we see that clearly on the cross. We hold that up all the time on the cross. But what Jesus, Jesus finished at Calvary hanging on a tree, he began in a river, in a desert. I like how the scholar Dale Bruner puts it. It is well known, he writes, that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. By identifying with these needy sinners, Jesus makes a way for those sinners to be declared righteous. We'll go on to discover that in Paul's writings. 
but also a way for God to remain righteous by welcoming in these needy sinners. And so this baptism is beginning to fulfill this thing that both helps our righteousness and God's righteousness, both of which were at stake in us coming together. And it began to happen through this identification. We see it at baptism. So that's the first I. The second I is the initiation of Christian baptism. Yes, Jesus receives John's baptism in the river, but then bigger things happen. We'll see that. Jesus actually transforms his baptism into something greater. He adds to it. The main evidence of this that we see is the activity, the giving of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism. His baptism was not only about this identification with sin, it was also about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through undergoing baptism, Jesus transforms it, and he initiates this new practice for the church. If you want to compare it, uh, it's very much like the Last Supper. Jesus does the Last Supper really once for him, but by doing that, he initiates the practice, what we call a sacrament for us. Both baptism and communion are these critical practices that help us live rightly, live righteously with God. So we have identification, we have initiation. The third I is the inauguration of God's kingdom. You see, Jesus' baptism was launching his public ministry. It's very much like a presidential inauguration, which we'll have just a couple of weeks A new administration, a new government is coming through Christ the Lord. Through him, God's kingdom is breaking into the world. And we saw that around the stories of his birth, right? There was different things happening that was announced, that was celebrated. But then really things go quiet for like 30 years in Jesus' life until he was an adult. And he comes on the scene again. And he goes through this baptism. And from that point on, Jesus will be bringing in and bearing witness to God's kingdom through his mighty words, his teaching, his mighty deeds, his miracles, and then ultimately through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of the Spirit, all of those big events of the story. Through his baptism, though, in particular, we see him revealed as God's chosen king, as the Messiah. He's the one authorized to bring in the kingdom. We don't have time to unpack all of this, but looking at the baptism, there is so much theological significance, so many texts from the Old Testament that are being worked out and fulfilled in the baptism. Let me just give you a flavor of it. Uh, God is showing Jesus to be the servant of Isaiah 42, who will bring forth justice to the nations. We heard that read. He is showing Jesus to be the royal king of Psalm 2, through whom he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He's showing Jesus to be the promised son of David from 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. And here's one of my favorites in Matthew. Um, He's showing Jesus to be the new Israel. He's called out, go back a chapter, he's called out from Egypt. Remember, Jesus went down to Egypt fleeing Herod, and then God calls him out of Egypt, calls him his son. Then Jesus, like the people of old, goes through the water, People of old, the Red Sea, Jesus, his baptism, the Jordan River, and then they both go out into the desert to what? To be tested. But here's the glorious difference. The people of old, the people of God, when they went into the desert, they failed the test. But Jesus, he goes into the desert. Matthew 4, he's tempted and he passed the test. He trusts God in every way, and so he is the only one who can bring God's people into the new promised land. 
into a new world. So you see all of this happening in his baptism. It's a momentous event in his life. And it's showing us who he is and how he is fulfilling all righteousness. John didn't see that. He just said, no, this isn't right, because he had a pretty limited view of what he was doing. But Jesus saw it. Identification, initiation, inauguration. Well, the reason we know some of these bigger things is not the actual act of going under the water, but what happens as he comes up out of the water. Amazing things begin to happen. Three things Matthew really wants us to notice. He marks them out with this word, behold. If you don't have a Bible that actually translates the behold, get one, because it's an important word. It's a gospel word. It's where the gospel writers are saying, you need to notice this. So the first thing we want to notice as he comes up out of the waters, the heavens are opened. Now that phrase actually doesn't show up all that often in the New Testament, but when it does, we need to behold. We need to pay attention because something about Jesus and something about his ministry that's very important will be revealed. Apart from his baptism, there's a few other times where the heavens are open. Acts chapter 7. The first martyr, Stephen, of the church. He's being stoned. He looks up, he sees the heavens opened, and he has a vision. He gets to see Jesus at the right hand of God as the Son of Man, and there's all this wonderful Daniel 7 um, in the background. Why? Why is that moment important? Because that was the beginning of our witness, particularly our witness of laying down our lives for the gospel. Many, many people since then have laid down their lives for the gospel. And that very first moment, God opens up his heavens and he allows Stephen, but all of us as well, to look up and to see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father and say, he is better than life. I will lay down my life for him. It's the first time. Well, the second time after his baptism, but the first time we see it after that. Another time, also in Acts chapter 10, we heard it read in our scriptures. Peter sees the heavens open and, and this very bizarre vision. The sheet comes down from heaven. And as he begins to inquire into that, the Lord reveals to him that the Gentiles are also part of God's plan, that they're also going to receive the Holy Spirit. That prepares Peter for what happens next. Cornelius comes, and then, lo and behold, Cornelius, Gentile, his household, receive the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing moment. We sometimes miss it, but especially as Gentiles, we need to pay attention. I think Acts 10 is as important as Acts 2. It's the second Pentecost. It's the Holy Spirit coming on the Gentiles. Major moment in the um, biblical narrative. Heavens are opened. And then one last time do we see it in Revelation 4. Uh, John gets this vision of an open door in heaven. And then through the vision, it's revealed that Jesus is the lion who is the lamb, and he's the only one who can unlock the scroll of history, to make sense of the meaning of history. So it just gives us a flavor. The heavens are opened. You see that? Something big is about to happen, but the baptism begins it all. Through the baptism, God is saying something profound about this man. He's giving us heaven's perspective on this person standing before us, drenched in the murky waters of the Jordan. Well, the second thing that happens is Jesus comes up out of the water and the heavens are open is that the Holy Spirit comes down. And he comes down to rest on Jesus in the form of a dove. 
Jesus is a man saturated by the Holy Spirit. And the gospel writers want us to know this. Luke actually brings it out the most. The supernatural birth by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. The anointing of the Holy Spirit here at baptism. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. All of his miracles, the power of the Holy Spirit being at work in those. The gospel writers want us to see the close relationship between Jesus and the Spirit. He is the one on whom God has put his Spirit. He will eventually baptize others with the Holy Spirit because he himself has received the Holy Spirit. But why does the Spirit come down as a dove? Well, I think in part it highlights the humility and the gentleness of Jesus. He's coming to make peace between rebellious humanity and God, if they'll have it, if they'll respond to it. He's not coming as many expected the Messiah to come as this powerful military leader to push down the Romans. He comes as the suffering servant. He's as gentle as a dove. Doesn't mean he's weak. Doesn't mean he's not going to execute judgment at some point. But his primary mission in his first coming was to seek and to save the lost, to show the tender and forgiving, loving heart of God. I think that's good for us to remember. Because we can get caught up with visible, worldly displays of power. Well, Jesus was incredibly powerful in the Holy Spirit, but not always in those ways that we would imagine or that we want to see. He was powerful in the dove of the Spirit. I think the dove might also be a sign of new creation. Think back in Genesis. Genesis 1, we see the Spirit hovering like a bird over the formless void. And what's he about to do? He's about to bring new life, new creation out of the watery chaos. And then again, just a few chapters later, Genesis 8, it's the dove that brings Noah the message of this new world emerging out of the floodwaters. Here, as Jesus emerges out of the waters of baptism, he's doing an act of new creation. He's leading his people into a new world. He's making all things new, including broken and sinful humanity. So we see the heavens open. We see the Spirit come down like a dove. But the third thing that happens is a voice. Not just a voice, the voice. On this special occasion, the Father will speak the magic word over his Son. Are you ready to discover what it is, if you haven't figured it out already? Look at Matthew 3, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. That's the magic word. Beloved. That's the word that was written into the fabric of our universe. God created the world in love, particularly out of love for the Son. Only twice in the Synoptic Gospels does the Father speak a word from heaven. Once here at Jesus' baptism and once at his transfiguration, which is where he goes up in the mountain and he transfigures and becomes all these colors. Both times the Father speaks the same word over his Son, Beloved. Because it's the word that defines the relationship between the Father and the Son. From all eternity, the Son has been the beloved of the Father. To put it in our terms, the Father is crazy about His Son. He is pleased with His Son in every way. The Son is the object of the Father's internal enjoyment and delight. But now, 
this ancient word breaks into our worlds in the scene by the river. It makes me wonder, did Jesus need to hear the word? He had been hearing it from all eternity. He had been experiencing his father's love for him. But now, perhaps in his humanity, Jesus needed to hear it. He needed to hear the love of a father spoken over him because all human beings need that to live. And perhaps Jesus, who was about to embark on this very difficult mission that would cost him his life, needed to be affirmed in his father's love right from the beginning. But it's interesting, in Matthew, the voice is public, not private. It's not just saying to Jesus himself, but it's saying, this is my beloved son. The father wants the world to know how beloved Jesus is. It's the main point he wants to get across. Again, Dale Bruner paraphrases the father's words like this. Here in this man is everything I want to say, reveal, and do, and everything I want people to hear, see, and believe. If you want to know anything about me, if you The Father speaks this word. The Son receives it. Jesus is the beloved. But where does that leave us? Are we just left watching the scene before the river? It's kind of like a wedding where you go to a wedding and it's, it's nice. You get to see this beloved couple coming together. You can say that's wonderful, but maybe there's an emptiness in our heart that we want to be up there. We want to have those words spoken into and over us. Where does that leave us? Because I suggested that every person needs to hear the word. With it, we come alive. We flourish without it. We shrivel up and die. Too often human beings go looking for it in all the wrong places. You might suggest that everything we do in some way is motivated by this desire to find the rest in the Father's love. But as I suggested, there's only one person who really speaks this word, and that's the Father. And there's only one person through whom it may be received, the Son. We can receive love in many types of relationships. It's a reflection. It's a model of that heavenly relationship. But none will satisfy those deep longings of love that we have. Many, many years ago, St. Augustine put it like this. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. So how might we go about receiving this word, beloved, that our souls might be at rest? Well, it has everything to do with baptism. And Matthew's gospel shows us this. In Matthew, Jesus' first public act is his own baptism, Matthew 3. But baptism is also central in his last public act. Matthew 28, Jesus concludes his public ministry by commissioning his disciples to go make other disciples. We call it the Great Commission. But how are they to do that? How are they to go about making other disciples? You are to baptize them, Jesus says. And not just as an empty water ritual, but through the preaching of the gospel and their response of faith, we bring people into the reality of God's grace and His love. You can translate that little word in also as into. I think it captures the meaning. We baptize them into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Through repentance, through faith, through baptism, we are immersed in the life, love, and fellowship of the triune God. We are invited to sit at their table eternally and enjoy their love and their goodness. 
And friends, once we're in, we're in. We're adopted children of the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Which means the magic word now fully applies to us and eternally. This ancient word, beloved, it's spoken over the Son. It's now spoken over us. Do you realize that? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter. I delight in her. I wonder, can we hear those words? Many of us in here, I would assume most of us are Christians, and we've heard some version of this before. When you dig deep into your heart, have you really received that? Do you receive it on a daily basis? Sometimes we might respond, yes, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the sin that's in my life. I'm not a very good Christian. I'm not a very good at work. I'm not a very good dad or mom or husband or wife. My prayer life stinks. I'm full of anxiety or depression or anger. Well, friends, God's love doesn't have anything to do with your performance. It has everything to do with Jesus and his righteousness and how he fulfilled that righteousness. That's the shocking, that's the wonderful announcement of the gospel. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we're beloved and we didn't earn it. We're beloved and we can't lose it because of him, because of Jesus. So have you received the word? Have you let it work its magic in your soul. When you do, it changes everything. Shame doesn't work anymore. Because when we're beloved, we know that God knows us. He loves us. He knows all the crap we've done. And he still goes right on loving us. We don't need to hide. When we're beloved, it gets rid of pride. It gets rid of performance. Because the title beloved, the reality beloved, is always given. It's never earned. And then being God's beloved, it empowers us. Along with the Holy Spirit in us now, it empowers us for love and obedience in a whole new way. Not obedience and love out of fear, not obedience and love to earn something, not, not to be the Pharisee, to be the righteous one, because we're free, we're loved. So what else do we have to do but to go love, to give our lives away, like Stephen did? You might be here today and you've never really received these words. You might have never been baptized, never come into the Christian faith. Friends, you can go looking for it all your life. You will never find it except through the Son where the Father speaks the words over you. You can do it today. You can turn to Him in repentance and faith and receive baptism. But if you're already in Christ, if you've been baptized, this is your fundamental identity. You might say, well, I don't feel it. Well, I hope that you will feel. I hope that you'll feel it this morning, but it's true whether or not you feel it. I want to close this morning by sharing a video, a song. It's a great reminder of our true identity in Christ as the Beloved.
Ah! Uh -huh. 